And a very good morning to you. We're live in London. You're listening to Monocle on Sunday with me, Emma Nelson. Coming up today, my guests Yasmin Abdelmajid and Nina Dos Santos are sharing their views on the week's biggest stories. Good morning, Yasmin. What have you spotted? Morning. So there's an interesting story about ChatGPT becoming lazy. And we'll look at a lighter one as well about France melting down millions of coins because the EU says its stars don't look right. How about you, Nina? What have you seen? Well, uh, on an international scale, I think, obviously, uh, the strife in the Middle East is keeping me very much on my toes, um, not least because of the um, US, UK and other coalition members' strikes against Houthi rebel targets over the last few days. But um, closer to home, one of the things I'm interested in is this article in The Times talking about how um, in the UK, children, five-year-olds, are starting to fall down the height league tables, and that has a lot to do with lifestyle and nutrition. Thank you for that. We'll also head to Taiwan, where the people have elected a new president whose term in office could see tensions rise with neighbouring China. I'm Naomi Shuelegant, Monocle's writer in Singapore, and I'm here in Taiwan this weekend to cover the presidential election. And Monocle's editorial director, Tyler Brule, will join us on the line from Tokyo. It's the 14th of January 2024, live from London. This is Monocle on Sunday. Live from London, this is Monocle on Sunday with Emma Nelson. So what better way to start off a Sunday than hearing from Yasmin Abdelmajid and Nina Dos Santos. A very good morning to you. Good morning. morning. How are we doing? I, for one, I'm really, really, really cold and I'm trying not to listen to the weather forecast (laughs) because it's just saying it's getting colder, it's getting colder. Okay, we're not in Helsinki, we're not in Kiev where it's super cold, but this is boring already. Well, it's partly because the UK isn't used to it being that cold and, you know, it's accompanied with leaden skies. That's the problem. So when you walk out the door to all of us who've lived here most of our lives, uh, Yasmin, you grew up in Australia. I did, yes. It's shocking to me every time I walk out the door and I'm like, where is the sky? What's what's blue sky like, Yasmin? We haven't seen it for a while. Tell us how it makes you feel. It makes me smile. You know, it genuinely... But the problem is, is you never quite know whether it's going to be warm or cold outside because look out the window and the sky looks exactly the same in many other countries. I lived in Italy and France and other nations. Um, You know, you you at least get some indication from the sky. Mm. That's what's different in the UK. Yeah, and also it always shocks me that the UK isn't better prepared because I feel like every winter there is a cold spell. Or a flood. Or a flood or, you know, a tiny, tiny snowstorm and everyone is shocked. We go bananas, we are obsessed. It just amuses me to no end. There'll be like one half a millimetre of snow and they'll be like, none of the tubes can work. I just hate that idea of opening the curtains every single morning and the sky just says, not today. (laughs) It's not happening today. You're just going to have a bad day. It's that awful thing that the day the sky has written your day off before you've even begun. You can't leave the house with a spring in your step, which is what you occasionally do when you can see the big yellow Take ball. back control over us, guys. I'd have a referendum Let's on sun referendum. any day. What I tried to do is wear bra. I mean, I haven't done it today um, because I'm wearing, as as my housemate would say, I'm part of the beige brigade. Be- the beige brigade neutrals darling. yeah 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 very sort of you know so am I, actually yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but when but when it's really gray i do like to try to like yellow fuchsia neon you know i try to bring that energy into well, that my just outfits. depresses me when you come along <laughs> see there's there's your there's your australian sunshine yeah. <laughs> bursting forth we'll knock it out of you yes <laughs> We'll deflate you in the next 56 minutes, I guarantee it. Um, let's head now for a bit of a different kind of sunshine. Let's hear from our editorial director, Tyler Brulee, on the line from Tokyo, where it's just, what, it's 6pm. Is it time for a sundowner, Tyler? Good evening. 
Good evening. Good morning uh, to everyone in Studio One. I, I have to start by making you a little bit jealous. It was one of those mornings in Tokyo, and that's what happens at this time of year. Incredible high pressure, impossibly blue skies. It's about zero right now, and it, just, it was so sunny and crisp. And amazing. And people often sort of, they write to us at Monocle and they say, okay, when is the best time to go to Japan? Should I be going, you know, springtime? Should I be going autumn? And I always actually head to Japan now because you have a little bit more of the place to yourself, aside from all of the, the Aussies uh, heading up to Anisiko to go skiing. Um, and it's just, it's amazing. It's just the most perfect, perfect weather and not a, a sort of a, a lid of clouds in sight. And it sounds like you have a spring in your step this evening. I do have a spring myself. I'm just walking past Yogi Park. I just I went to pay a little visit, of course, to the Monocle outpost. And maybe I'm counting sunny and fresh. The last time I saw you, Emma, we have a special event coming up. I had to go and uh, to go to my, my, my shave and, uh, and hair chop masters in Tokyo. So I'm, uh, I'm all ready to join you next weekend in Paris. Yeah, I have, I'm haircut week as well. Um, just tell us what you're doing in Tokyo. <laughs> Listen, the usual thing, it's, it's, it's a kickoff for your moment. Uh, I'll be seeing on the topic of sundowners. Uh, we have actually uh, one of our former colleagues uh, is, uh, is here in Tokyo at the moment, but uh, visiting from Taipei. So there'll be much uh, dissection uh, of, of course, election weekend. Uh, They're very keen to hear his view. Of course, checking in with Fiona. And, but of course, this is a time of year. You know, many Asian business calendars, of course, uh, work to April 1st. So it's a very important time for us to be shoring up new business. Uh, and, and seeing clients at the start of the year. Uh, one thing that we do need to ask you is um, the cherry blossom forecast for 2024. This is a major bit of news, isn't it? I have been studying maps which uh, give precise days of when peak cherry blossom is going to happen. Um, apparently, Tokyo is the 23rd of March, uh, Nagoya 21st of March, and Osaka the 25th of March. This is a this is a huge thing, that, not just this year, because it's moving. It is moving. Listen, not by you know weeks. There's no sort of uh, hysteria in terms of, of a warming planet. We're talking one day. So the way it was presented... Uh, on the front pages uh, of, of the Japanese press, you would have thought they were talking uh, that it was going to be a day now. But we are talking, at least in the, you know, the Kansai and Tokyo region, early part of March. And part of this has to do with, uh, as meteorologists and, of course, people who follow this, not to mention, of course, you know, everyone uh, who's in the service industry, this is, this is, they kind of knew this sort of November, December time. Warm November, December means, of course, uh, that those uh, cherry trees are getting very excited uh, to bloom uh, and, of course, welcome tens of millions of visitors from across Japan and, and, around, and around the world. And it is interesting because you know, we often think, okay, is it confined to this period? But you know, Japan runs at quite a distance from north to south. So you think about how things kick off in, in Kagoshima, Nagasaki, even you know, a week or two earlier. And then, of course, the season runs all the way up until the beginning of May uh, by the time you get up to, to Sapporo and further north in Hokkaido. And just tell us exactly how much of a logistical change a country needs to make if, if its uh, cherry blossoms are coming a couple of days earlier. Well, of course, there's going to be uh, room bookings uh, because obviously uh, you have this you know, very large you know, domestic uh, migration. Many are day trippers. Of course, others will plan uh, their weekends 
to go to specific cities. You might uh, decide that you want to go to to Riacan that weekend. Uh, so that that is part of it. And then you have just the, the general mobilization and what that means if you're one of uh, the, the JR, one of the Japan Rail companies as well. Um, you mentioned uh, talking about sort of like hospitality and what have you. There is a little bit of heartbreak on the horizon for you, isn't there? Because of the park hired. Um, have you bid adieu to room 4701 yet? No, listen, I'm actually standing uh, looking at the Park Hyatt uh, right now from the corner of uh, Yogi Park. And I, I arrived last night, I flew in from Paris, and uh, it was it was interesting because I, I wanted to potentially meet Fiona and some others for drinks last night. And I thought, okay, well, we'll all go up to, to, the, uh, to the New York bar uh, and grill, and, uh, and it was already shuttered. Uh, so I thought they weren't fully starting the renovations until May. And the story is, of course, that uh, the Park Hyatt's yeah, just a, an extraordinary uh, architectural monument. Uh, Kenzo Tange designed. Uh, John Morford uh, famously did the interiors for this property. And, of course, it's had a couple of close-ups, uh, particularly in, in Lost in Translation. And this is a hotel which is, you know, it's over a quarter century old. Uh, it's, not, you know, by any standards, not that old. But this is Japan, and this means it's a time of renewal. Now, anybody else anywhere in the world would walk in there as was the case with a colleague uh, who's actually traveling with me now. He had his first trip to Japan earlier in the year, and he was like, wow, this is extraordinary. It's amazing. And to him, it was box fresh, which which is remarkable. So they're being a little bit tight-lipped, I'm assured, and you, you talk about heartbreak. They, they keep on assuring me, though I've not seen any plans yet, um, and I have sort of threatened to do not mess this up. And they, they're talking about just a light dusting of powder. Um, there, there might be, um, I don't know, maybe there's going to be a bit of mess going on, and hopefully not too much. Um, but I'm, I'm curious and a little worried to see what, what they do. But it's, it's a testament to this is you know, a property which was designed right the first time. I hope there's a recognition that, yeah, that what was built over 25 years ago still stands the test of time. That psychological spirit of renewal that's so important to, to Japanese architectural culture, I mean, it, it does really raise fears that, that the best stuff has a sledgehammer taken to it. Well, and of course, you'll remember somewhat famously that we, we ran a campaign to save the Okura uh, in Tokyo and, and gathered thousands and thousands of names. And we actually presented uh, all of those name signatures, comments to the, the management uh, of, the, of the Okura to say, you know, again, uh, please, please, you, know, do, you must preserve this lobby. And there's so many things that um, yeah, they, they absolutely must uh, remain intact. And the good thing is, I think they listened. Uh, there was there, the whole the poor building, of course, came down. But I think, again, if you walked into that lobby today, um, you really wouldn't notice that, uh, that that much had changed, even though everything had had changed. But it is still um, it, it still uh, yeah represents the best in in Japanese modernism. Uh, finally, um, one thing that hasn't changed is a rather marvelous. Um, men's magazine called Brutus. It's been around since, what, 1980? And um, just tell us, for those of us who don't have a regular subscription to Brutus, what is it and why is it so important? Yeah, so on uh, newsstands, on, on bookshop 
ourselves, uh, Emma, uh, Brutus is, is a, it's, it's a thousandth issue. Uh, it's a curious magazine. It's, it's a men's title, but almost in the same way that you say Monocle is a men's title, but Monocle appeals to, to everybody. And it's the same situation for, for Brutus uh, as well. It's, it comes out twice a month, uh, so it's on a bit of a curious publishing schedule. And it indulges in popular culture. It goes very deep. Uh, of course, design is a theme. Fashion is a big part of what it does. But it defines that particular moment uh, when Japan, from a pop culture perspective, it rose to the global stage in the 1980s. And and was was really uh, this title, which, yeah, you know, if, if if you were one of those maybe buyers for Browns in London, or if you worked for Barney's in New York in that period, it was your Bible when you came to Tokyo. And it's still, it's it's one of those magazines which has such a specific formula. You know exactly what you're going to get almost on every page, um, and very little of it has changed. Of course, some of the production techniques, the reproduction, uh, you know, there are aspects, of course, which are a little bit different. But at the same time, uh, it is, it, it's the magic of magazines. They're often a little bit of rinse and repeat when they do it incredibly well. Um, so I've already, I've already stocked up on a few uh, uh, copies of their, of their thousandth edition. And I need to say as well, it has very much been an inspiration to... Uh, to all of us, uh, it's um, you, you'll see a few cues that we've taken from that title over the years. Is it still a Bible in Japan? It is. It, yes, I think it is because, well, first it's still around, but it, it's it's a marker. Uh, it is a title that you want to have your first collection uh, if you're a designer uh, represented in. If you are a uh, an author, you want. Uh, to get the attention uh, when, when they do one of their book specials. And that's one of the great things they do. You know, like, like so many Japanese, it's not just Brutus, but maybe Brutus set a bit of a tone, Emma. They go so deep. It is just, it is microscopic uh, when they go and just do, again, a whole, you know, they'll do just cover to cover on secondhand bookshops in Tokyo, or they will do, you know, emerging manga talent, and, and it will, and, or they will go and just do Kyoto, but they'll only focus on curry in Kyoto, <laughs> and you've never seen something so in-depth, so many pages, breaking down the spices, all, all of those things, and there's something about just the depth and detail, I have to say, we simply don't have that in the West, it's just, you would never see a magazine, whether it's German, French, British, or American, that goes to that level of depth and detail. And of course, you know, that is what the Japanese do best. And it's why we, we continue to adore this country. It sort of raises a bigger issue about the fact that to, to such a degree nowadays, there is zero scope for breathing space, is there, in what we consume, what we read, what we watch, what we do? Yeah, and I think also, I think very little scope and space for, for going deep. Uh, and, and, and what's interesting when I say deep, deep doesn't mean it, it in, in a New Yorker sense that it's 9,000 words and, and you're almost waiting to get to the end. This is going deep, but uh, through so many different angles. And so whether it is, you know, a, let's say if we talk about a book, well, a bookstore special, or let's say they're, they're twice yearly men's fashion special that they do. It is, it is so broad, and, and here's this in the business that, you know, everyone sitting in the U.K., God, you'd be, you'd be thanking yourself if you're running a duffel coat company because it's a quite chilly this evening in Tokyo, and the duffel coat business, all of those, maybe, what are there, three or four 
Scottish brands that are still making great duffel coats. God, they're doing a, a brisk trade over here. Now, that is a story that probably Brutus, if they didn't do it two seasons ago, they'd be doing it now, and they would be talking about the horn buttons, where the leather comes from. They'd probably gone and interviewed all of the animals that the horns came off of um, in, in the process. But so they break it down in such a detail. So I, I say, when we go deep, I think we sort of go, we go narrow and deep when that so happens in Western media. Um, but the Japanese go incredibly broad and, and deep. And I have to say there's, there's some fine-looking duffel coats uh, out of the market. I need to get myself one. I was about to say, final question. What do you bring back in your suitcase? Oh, don't listen. That was a disaster pre-Christmas. Um, I think there's almost a loss, a lawsuit with DHL because, you know, somehow, some way, and in the spirit of detail, someone filled up the, the customs form in our office. And I think, you know, of course, it asked the question whether there were meat products or something in something. I think there might have been a pack of curry. Now, this curry, of course, could go to the moon and back. It was so processed. Um, there was no chance that any diseases were going to be spread uh, in uh, within the Schengen area. Nevertheless, it was it, it was detained in Cologne. Um, it wasn't a sad Christmas, but there were there were a lot of gifts that should have made it under the tree. The box didn't make it uh, to, to Zurich until the fourth of January, so there was sort of a follow up Christmas. Uh, what am I purchasing on this trip? This is the one problem. So, listeners, uh, if you are heading to Japan at this time of year, like everywhere else, it's sale season. So uh, you can't. Of course, I think there are some plenty of good bargains. Uh, maybe the, the upside for Westerners is that often big sizes are still left in Japan. Uh, so that. That's good, that's good news. But, of course, you know, big sizes in Japan means medium by Western standards. Uh, so it's not going to help that many people. I'll see. I'm going to do a little scope, Emma, uh, see what's out there. But it's a busy week. Not too much retail time, but always a moment for a bit of a diversion here or there. Thank you so much. Tyler Brule on the line from Tokyo. You're listening to Monocle on Sunday in the studio and listening to that. Nina Dos Santos and Yasmin Abdel-Majid. The joy of bringing stuff back in your suitcase. What we've heard just there was the streng verboten curry. <laughs> streng verboten. <laughs> so strong, it's... Not not allowed. Oh, right? it's so boring, it's isn't so it? I mean, how many times have we... OK, I can say this now because it happened years ago, but smuggling <laughs> cheese back from France oh, was one of those... we've all done that. We've all oh. done that. The only problem is it smells so bad. <laughs> and then you have to buy... The rest the of your clothes. Uh, whip yeah. it out. You have to buy the Tupperware boxes and then that costs money and it takes up time and blah, blah, blah. And, oh, I don't know. When Anything, I, have when, we had the smuggling stuff from somewhere? I think so, but it's always it's always fun to come back to because mm. my 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 family's obviously from Sudan and we would go we would visit Sudan every two years and as a young child I would always want to you know bring some sort of artifact back but Australia of course has oh, yeah. these intense quarantine policies and I remember just so distinctly once buying these like you know handmade drums that were like kind of made out of Sudanese Nile mud and stretched cowhide this that and the other and I had because they were so fragile I had carried them as a 10 year old in my hands the whole flight and I get to the border and they're like well you can either pay $120 which for me at the time was you know a fortune totally worth it um, and and get them treated but they'll probably collapse or we can just take them and I remember standing there being like is is this just my life you know the, uh, the drums disappear I never this saw is the actually again. genuinely upsetting. I know. Yeah, I'm sorry. I'm sorry to do this to you on a Sunday morning. Um. I, I used to live in Italy, and I used to try and bring olive oil back. And the first time I was rumbled by the new liquid um, policy <laughs> <laughs> was just 
soul destroying. Devastating. Devastating. Know, there yeah, is that yeah, glorious yeah. thought, though, that they're just about to remove the 100 milliliter thing oh. for planes. That's I think a bit like inheritance tax in this country, yeah. isn't it? <laughs> it's just. much promised, very much signalled, and never quite delivered. But who doesn't love a Eurostar? Because you can mm. put a bottle of something mm-hmm. in there. Apart from mm-hmm. the fellow passengers when you bring the cheese back. <laughs> oh, yeah, there is that. There is that. The glories of bringing things back. I mean, you've lived all over the place, haven't you, Nian? So, so the idea of bringing things well, it's different. Yeah, you fall foul of lots of uh, customs regulations, don't you? And also travelling around the world covering different stories mm. in different parts of the world too. To be quite honest with you, I'm so cautious now. I don't bring anything back. Oh, yeah. Very, very rarely. Yeah. And indeed, I hate to say it, since Brexit, stuff has disappeared oh. from our shelves yeah. that we used to be able to, to oh, come God, back. I mean, like strawberries, tomatoes, yes. food, <laughs> central <laughs> London. It is, it is, if you have not been to the United Kingdom recently, um, let this be a warning to you. Our supermarket shelves are empty. It's absolutely bananas. It's well, there are no there bananas. are no there bananas. are bananas. No, there are there's bananas. Smaller. Yeah, no, there's <laughs> plenty of. Hang on, are they Tiny right? bananas? Bendy bananas. <laughs> what was it? Boris Johnson. You know, used to level at the EU. I'm holding in my hand, ladies and gentlemen, a banana. It is arguably the smallest banana mm-hmm. I've ever I've ever had to deal it's more with. More the size of a nail clipping, really. <laughs> Ooh. <laughs> you could you could you could close one of Tyler's duffel coats with that, couldn't you? <laughs> As a button. Still processing nail clippings. I don't know how big your toes are. <laughs> But yeah, I get the sort of comparison. The vibe, the vibe, yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Emma is looking quite disturbed, folks. Well, I'm not entirely sure where I'm going to take this programme now because we have a banana the size of of Yasmin's nail clipping and I'm not quite sure how we get into serious news today. Uh, Let's take a brief deep breath and have a look. Um, Who wants to kick off with what they've spotted in the papers? Uh, Yasmin, having thrown me under the bus with a nail clipping, your turn. Should we we start with the strikes, the um, US-UK strikes on the Houthis? Because I think, you know, stunning, I mean, just this weekend in London, actually, we saw pretty enormous um, protests in the street, demonstrations in support of Palestine, but also um, in support of Yemen now. Uh, and I think this, you know, this the UK-US strikes against the Houthis have complicated um, some of the narrative around this. Nina, do you want to... Yeah, well, and we've seen David Cameron, mm. Lord David Cameron, the UK's new foreign secretary, unelected, by the way. Mm. Let's just point that out th- because it's, it's interesting thing. that he's lecturing other mm-hmm. countries around the world. Um, writing in the Daily Telegraph, uh, specifically signalling repeatedly that he believes this has nothing to do with events in the Middle East, mm-hmm. in Gaza and Israel's war on Gaza. Um, he is repeatedly saying in this piece that, you know, and this is a refrain we're, going, we're hearing from the United States as well, that, you know, these attacks on Houthi positions in Yemen, places like the port of Hodeida, but other, other attacks as well. And by the way, not just UK and US-led mm. attacks on Houthi positions. There are also other partners like, for instance, yeah. security partners like Australia that got involved. That's right. Canada um, well. Yeah. In Canada, the key position he's making is that he's saying this is all about international trade, this is about this affecting international trade, and the Western-led sort of coalition, if you like, of the willing has got to get involved to prevent that because, you know, we're talking about several percent of grain shipments going through the Red Sea, oil and gas, liquefied natural gas. It's just so important for the world economy that it can't be derailed, he says, at the moment like this after the pandemic, um, and it has nothing to do with Gaza and Israel. It's, a, it's an absolute masterstroke by the Houthis to target the private sector. Mm. It, it, I mean, it, it was one of those things that you noticed when things started in 
in Gaza, you knew that the world would not step in because it is somebody else's fight and it is, it is you know, you have to be careful and you have to contain it. But the minute that you worked out that people in the West would be not getting whatever it is that the shipment that's brought up through through the Red Sea wouldn't arrive. And if it did arrive, it would be much more expensive. And in, dare I say it, in an entirely cynical way, in an election year, it, the first reaction behind the, closed, behind the scenes on, on Thursday evening when these strikes happened was, is this because they're worried that the electorate will say, my prices have gone up? I mean, is it, can it be seen as crudely as that, Yasmin? Perhaps. I mean, I do think you're right to say that it was... I'm not sure people expected this from, you know, the Houthis in particular. And and I, and I you're right to also point out that targeting shipping and targeting international trade w- was one of the levers that could force, you know, Western countries to do something differently. I, I think it's going to be very difficult for Western leaders to sort of keep holding on to this idea that the... You know, the conflict isn't going to spread further. This isn't going to be a wider regional conflict. When when now they are responsible for strikes, you know, and also the Houthis have said now this makes all US and UK interests legitimate targets, right? And so you've already, even though I believe Rishi Sunak said, uh, the Prime Minister of the UK said they don't suspect that there will be further strikes and so on, you know, the lid has been pulled off, blown off as it were, and and I and I don't quite know how it's going to play out. And of course, this is off the back, sadly, of, you know, last year, towards the end of last year, we had finally seen, in, you know, informal peace talks between Saudi and Yemen. We were hoping to see an end to this long-standing war between Saudi and, and the Houthi rebels in, um, in Yemen. And so, that seems way out the window now because yeah. because of course you know the Houthis are Iran backed and 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 that's and have had a long standing um, issue against Saudi and the other thing I want to add which hasn't really been reported but as a Sudanese person I think is interesting is that Burhan the head of the Sudanese armed forces has been meeting with Iran whereas Himeti the head of the the militia appeared then at the UN and so all of a sudden you're seeing other people in the region trying to sort of position themselves in this conflict already along very traditional lines, Saudi and, and Iran and, and the kind of broader broader powers. And you can sometimes, I mean, when the minute that you, the, that I heard about the, 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 the British involvement in this, a part of me just said, when was the last time that the United Kingdom got involved in a, a confrontation with a militia um, and it succeeded because we just need to look at Afghanistan, we just need to look at uh, the, the the invasion of Iraq. Not That wasn't to topple a militia, it was to topple a government. But you just but suddenly think... Libya had a similar situation exactly. to the one that Yemen has been dealing mm-hmm. with for many, many years where you have, you know, one UN-backed government and then you have a whole other part of the country that's un- governed by other militia groups that are unrecognised but recognised by, by big people. international powers yeah. like, for instance, yeah. Iran... Russia, I mean, Turkey, the playbook in Libya, allowed Turkey and President Erdogan there to burnish his international credentials. Heaven forbid, he created an entire drone manufacturing industry to position Turkey diplomatically, internationally, by virtue of getting involved in the conflict in Libya. And there's no evidence here when it comes to um, 
events in Yemen that actually, even after a 15-year campaign, very richly funded by the UAE, that actually the Houthis would be eradicated by or stymied, let's say, um, by this action from big players like the United States and the UK, especially if, as Yasmin was just saying before, it ends up being sort of half-hearted and they end up getting dragged into a broader regional conflict further south when there's a big regional conflict further north um, with Hezbollah potentially flaring up. And the the New York Times today is reporting that, by all accounts, the targeting um, of Houthis in Yemen in the last 48 hours has not been completely successful because the Houthis have not actually been that badly affected by the strikes. That, that yes, it has taken out a couple of operational um locations but but the Houthis like a fight and yeah. they have come back 10 times more emboldened haven't they I I'm, I actually don't quite understand what the vision for this was frankly because like and 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 part of you know is this just the same lesson not being learned over and over again how are you going to get involved in a it directly in a place you don't know that well in a geography you don't quite understand against a group that has very solid support within the country and frankly the Houthis being pro-Palestinian despite um, the despite the P- Yemenis being split around the support of the Houthis they are now very pro Houthis because they're like well they're at least standing up against Israel and so you've kind of you've really I think it is deeply concerning actually that I, I think the politicians Biden and Sunak and, and the coalition around have entered something where I don't like directly where I don't think they have any idea how to end. You're quite right in, in the, the idea they don't know where it's going to end but I, I sort of wonder that when you look at Joe Biden you see an uh, the elder statesman in, in the most you know, complete image but you get a man who gets history. Sunak, possibly slightly differently. And one wonders if there is something lacking in the way that decisions are made or advisors are brought in or just the way that governments are formed where people don't look backwards. I'm not sure about that because I remember the days of Tony Blair um, hitching his ship to George mm. W. Bush in the Iraq war. I mean, the, the special relationship is always inherently, uh, let's say, unbalanced mm. in terms of economic might, defence spending, power leverage, etc. Um, there's also quite a bit of co- uh, chaos that has gone on in the decision-making here, it looks like, in the United States, not least because Lloyd Austin, the Defence Secretary, was in intensive care during much of this time. And it seems though Joe Biden didn't actually know that he was going in for a procedure that eventually ended up uh, going uh, quite badly for him. And that, you know, is something that opportunistic groups like, for instance, the Houthis backed by Iran, who will be watching all of this, will happily take advantage of. I think, I wonder, Emma, whether or not um, the UK in particular, but the US as well, got itself into a situation that we've seen before where they've signalled so many times, look, if this happens, Mm. we will do something, we will act, and here they just had to act. But I do agree with Yasmin that, you know, it's very unclear where this is going to go for two reasons. One, it's an asymmetric war. Mm -hmm. So it's very cheap for Houthis to, um, you know, shoot off some of these missiles, use drones, you know, disposable hardware that's cheap to attack uh, US warships, UK warships in the area. Each time those warships have to defend themselves, it can cost a million dollars to fire, you know, their systems back in protection. And then there's also a media war going on. When we see these 
highly produced videos, and we're all broadcasters here. Emma, you were at the BBC, I was at CNN for years. When you see those videos that the Houthis are putting online that have been filmed, edited, you've got GoCo, GoPro cameras, drones, helicopters... It, it's also part of a media war as 100%. well, isn't it? And I they mean, are being used at the top of every single international news bulletin oh, yeah, as well because the pictures are so strong. Yeah. And if we are in an entirely visually driven, driven world, yeah. then that's going. it looks like an adventure game. I actually... So I thought this was really interesting because I was shown these videos by a couple of, like friends of my younger brother like a few years younger than me who are never interested in politics but are gamers but are interested in you know in in interesting internet memes they were the ones sending me these videos being like oh my god doesn't this look like call of duty doesn't this look how sick is this and you're completely right Nina. like this is it is a propaganda a narrative look at us against the big guy against the west and we're going to be able to to win and we do turn into this this world now geopolitically. I mean, you mentioned the idea of the UN, the US and the UK making threats. We will do this. We will do this. So was that fear, wasn't there, that all that, that the US and the UK were were under pressure at least? I think I read somewhere that you know, the red lines that kept draw, being drawn were at risk of turning pink. Mm. Yeah, they there's just so they much at stake for, for, for the big players. Mm. On the other hand, I suppose, you know, the cynic in me might say, Look, we're we're in a very turbulent world. Um, you know, the defence players are inherently British. Uh, I mean, I'm talking about corporate defence companies are US, British, French, so on and so forth. So, you know, um, and and as I was saying, Turkey has sort of propelled itself into the uh, unmanned aerial aerial vehicle space. We're seeing more weaponry. We're seeing more war on our TV stations. And, you know, as you were saying before, Yasmin, we're seeing militants with rather cheap hardware, um, you know, getting in there and showing what they're capable of doing in terms of disrupting, whether it's international trade, um, you know, whether it's committing terrible acts. We're seeing it. Our screens. The time here in London is 9.33. You're listening to Monocle on Sunday with me, Emma Nelson, joined in the studio by Yasmin Abdelmajid and Nina Dos Santos. Uh, let's head to Taiwan, which has experienced uh, an enormous event this weekend. It's elected a new president whose term in office could see tensions rise with neighbouring China. William Lai and his DPP party won by a bigger margin than expected. His campaign openly angered Beijing as he promised to protect the island's sovereignty and maintain a separate national identity. China, however, considers the island state part of its own territory. I'm joined now by Naomi Shu Elegant, our Singapore correspondent, who's been in Taiwan. A very good afternoon or good morning, I should say to you, Naomi. Good morning to you, Emma. How expected was this DPP victory? Because um, there had been ferocious campaigns on either side and an enormous amount of pressure from Beijing as well. Yeah, I mean, as you said, um, a little... They- the margin was a bit higher than expected, but mostly it was according to what the polls had predicted. So, you know, no huge upsets. Um, I think the most interesting thing was how well the TPP did, which is a new party that was founded in, in 2019. Um, and, you know, to go from not even being an election essentially before to, to getting about a quarter of the votes was pretty interesting. We did predict that, predict that in the polls, but um, to just see voters kind of shift away from these two quote-unquote establishment parties when the DPP used to be opposition um, was pretty interesting. 
Um, just how much has that changed the dynamic? Because the narrative that we're getting out in the, from from outside Taiwan is that this was a a, a, a sort of a straight fight between um, the party which wished to move all further away from China and the party which wished to not necessarily close make the ties closer, but to to, to hold tight to them. Yeah, I mean, as you say, the, the dynamic since uh, Taiwan had democratic direct elections in 1996 has always been between the Kuomintang, which is, you know, a little more China friendly, uh, and the DPP, which is uh, a bit more skeptical, a bit more, you know, pro-democracy, especially in the last few years as the tensions have, have really risen to the scale of kind of global attention. Um, but this kind of third party coming in and taking especially younger voters away, um, I think has really shown how, uh, you know, here, a lot of domestic issues like you know, rising house prices and, and rising cost of living shows that even though voters in general kind of sway towards being more China skeptical and wanting to do their own thing and they don't appreciate, you know, Beijing threatening them with missiles and things of that nature, at the same time, they're not going to give the DPP, which has been in power, uh, in power now for eight years, kind of a free pass to just uh, say, OK, because you're the anti-China party, we'll vote for you. Um, I think a, a lot of these almost protest votes and uh, split ticket voters are kind of saying we want you to do better now. What does this now mean then for the, for the next few years? I mean, we have we have William Live, the Democratic Progressive Party. He's he was vice president to Tsai Ing-wen uh, for the last three years or so, and one of the things that he said in his um, in his speech to all his, his interview with reporters after his election was that he was quick to offer an olive branch to to Beijing. He said, "We hope China realizes peace serves both sides." He wants more exchanges, more dialogue. That is something that one suspects Beijing is not going to to jump to very quickly. Indeed, yeah. Um, I think in terms of foreign policy, he's probably going to follow the, the route that Tsai has been taking. Um, and as you say, I think uh, because China is such a big force on the national stage, on the global stage, it almost kind of uh, controls the narrative in a way where we feel that Beijing is always being reactive. And it's like, you know, Beijing warns the DPP not to do this and that. But uh, the DPP would be ha- more than happy to pick up the phone and, and talk to Xi Jinping and, and try and uh, lessen these tensions. But uh, Beijing essentially will never talk to the DPP. I think even if the KMT had been elected, it would have uh, maybe made things a little more friendly. But at this point, the the main sentiment in Taiwan is so much more skeptical of, of China that I, I don't foresee uh, you know, in addition to the U.S. being a lot more involved over the last four or five years, I, I don't think I would foresee like a huge ratcheting down, even if the other party had been elected. Uh, let's mention the United States, because there was a sort of a dual narrative come out, coming out of them last last night. We had... Um... Anthony Blinken, the U.S. Secretary of State, praising the islands, I'm quoting, robust democratic system and electoral process. He's very swift to congratulate uh, William Lai. Yet not much longer afterwards, uh, Joe Biden said that the United States does not support the independence of Taiwan. Um, Where does that leave the United States and its relationship with Taiwan when you have congratulations for an open democratic process, but not support for the very reason that the DPP got elected. Yeah, I mean it's a it's a funny situation. Taiwan has kind of always existed in this in this weird limbo in in you know in terms of the international stage where uh, the U.S. supports democratic countries and democratic procedures, but at the same time the kind of one China principle is this sacrosanct thing that because the U.S. and the PRC have diplomatic relations, you can actually recognize uh, the Republic of China, which is Taiwan, as as a country itself. Um, and then in terms of, you know, just the, the democratic sentiment, I will say being on the ground here, you know, attending the rallies, seeing people vote, especially as um, I used to live in Hong Kong and I also lived in Beijing for a while. It's really, really moving to see 
kind of Chinese language uh, democratic rallies and, and voting happen. Um, I know that uh, voters in Taiwan in 2020 were, were especially kind of moved and affected by the Hong Kong protests of the year before. And I think you really do feel um, the connection between those two places. So what happens next? I mean, obviously, there's a, there's a continued relationship with Beijing, which needs to be navigated. But also, there was quite a lot of dissatisfaction with the DPP domestically, wasn't there? They were saying that you know, young people weren't getting good enough wages, there were no decent job prospects. So there's quite a lot of work to do. There is, yeah, there's a lot of work to do. House prices are, you know, have been skyrocketing. Um, with inflation, the cost of living has been going up. Um, you know, education uh, kind of pressures is another big thing. And there's, you know, energy policy to look at, you know, social issues. Uh, and the, the DPP, even though they did win a third term for the presidency, actually lost the legislature. They don't have a majority. And um, I think that it's probably going to shake out that the KMT and TPP, who is kind of a, a power player now that they have only eight seats, but they can kind of sway in either way, will form a majority against the, the DPP, which means that they're going to have the presidency without the legislature. So they don't have, you know, smooth sailing ahead. I think they're really going to have to look into themselves and and give the electorate a little bit more than just, you know, anti-China rhetoric. Naomi Shu, Elegant in Taiwan. Thank you so much for joining us on Monocle on Sunday. Uh, listening to that, Yasmin Abdelmajid and Nina Dos Santos. We spent the, a good part of the beginning of the programme talking about instability. Uh, and guess what? We spent a bit more there talking about instability and also the fact that the United States is such a key player in all this. Who, who would like to pick up on that? Well, I'll just point out that, I mean, obviously, so one of the reasons why uh, the world is... Well, the United States and the UK have, you know, attacked uh, Houthi positions as obviously, as we we're pointing out, to protect trade. One of the things the United States is extremely concerned about is China perhaps not invading uh, Taiwan and forcibly reunifying it, but actually just blockading the island. Uh, and that would have a huge impact on the chip making industry that Taiwan uh, makes that powers the US semiconductor world. Um, so, you know, there are elements of similar sort of concerns, I think, from a US foreign policy point of view, albeit expressed in completely different ways, dealing with large partners. The difference here, obviously, as Naomi was pointing out before, is that, you know, the United States has this dual uh, policy with regards to to Taiwan that is slightly ambiguous. It sells military hardware to Taiwan. It's never ruled out defending Taiwan if China were to try and forcibly reunify it. But on the other hand, officially on the diplomatic books, it says, well, look, we want it immediately after this third historic term um, for William Lai's party, we want to immediately say we don't want any trouble with, with China. And we have this Really, we have yet another layer of complication militarily in the world, don't we? Because if you look at the United States at the moment, it is struggling to work out what to do with Ukraine in terms of funding. It has now decided to launch attacks on Houthi rebels. And as Nina has just said, you know, hardware is sent to Taiwan. And we are fully expecting that China will start to play some war games in the strait following the, the result here. Yeah, and I also think this is all happening in an election year, in 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 many election years, really. Like in the sense that that <clears throat> that you know, while the United States might have a position under Joe Biden, what will happen come November? How will that change things, and so on? And and also domestically, I think the issues that are concerning American voters are just why are not unfortunately. Ukraine necessarily or Palestine, Israel necessarily or what's happening um, in China or then you've got South China Sea, which keeps coming back every once in a while. So I think 
you've got the attention of leaders completely stretched. Nina, you pointed out earlier the the gaps at the at the highest level when people are ill and 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 Biden doesn't necessarily even know about it. You've got Blinken making these tours around the region and and not quite being on the same page as everyone else all the time. So I think the 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 splintering of attention, the difficulty in kind of focusing all on all these different quite urgent conflicts. It does make, I mean, I don't envy any of these people's positions. I, can I just point out, though, this isn't the first time that we've seen Blinken and Biden be on different pages when it comes to Taiwan. And indeed, there's lots of foreign policy and Nancy watches. Pelosi, we mustn't forget. Yeah. As well, <laughs> yes. But but she was a bit of a rogue cannon, generally, I would say, um, in, especially with her visits to you know, Taiwan and so on and so forth. But, um, but particularly when it comes to the president and, you know, uh, the Secretary of State, I wonder whether that speaks to that sort of ambiguity of the US policy where, you know, on the one Mm. hand, officially, (laughs) from a foreign policy point of view, that is the position. But then the president obviously, you know, is able to articulate with his Mm. authority the other unofficial position or vice versa. You're listening to Monocle on Sunday with me, Emma Nelson. It's 9.44. We'll be back in a moment with another look at the papers. How long do you think it would take you to travel the world to hear from the most perceptive and relevant speakers on the global news agenda? To mix that up with a trip to visit the business people benchmarking best practice in media, retail and hospitality. And to make time too, to delve into a rich mix of great design stories and rich cultural discoveries. Well, you can do all of this in just 60 minutes each week by tuning in to The Curator, a whistle-stop tour of the best of the last seven days on Monocle Radio. Subscribe and download the show now or listen every weekend on Monocle Radio. Welcome back to Monocle on Sunday here, coming to you from a chilly London. I'm joined by Nina Dos Santos and Yasmin Abdel-Majid. Uh, looking at the papers, Nina, you wanted to talk about a story that's come in the Sunday Times today, which suggests that the average height of children in the UK is shrinking. Uh, and it's and, it, and it's, it's the problems, that the underlying problems that that suggests that, that you wanted to talk about. Well, it's the rate of growth that's shrinking. So technically, um, children in the UK are still growing. They're, they're taller than they were, uh, at least when it comes to the average height for boys and girls aged five. They're taller than they were in 2010. By the way, that's pre the uh, Conservative-led at the time coalition government are coming in and introducing a lot of austerity policies. So um, boys back then were 110.2 centimetres. Now they're 110.9. Girls have put on just uh, 0.1 centimetres. Um, but the point is, so they are still growing, but they're not growing at anywhere near the same rate as other countries around the world. In fact, when it comes to um, five-year-old girls, the UK has dropped from 69th position in the world to 96th, and it's an even more pronounced drop to, I think, 102nd position from 69th when it comes to boys just in this short period of time. That means that we're eclipsed here in the UK um, by nations like Lithuania, Bulgaria, soaring up the league tables. And a lot of people say that this has uh, a lot to do with living standards falling, nutritional uh, standards falling, exercise and lifestyle habits in the UK. It's very worrying and it's kind of, I just speak as somebody who studied biology at university to see data like this over a period of time that appears to show that there's a socio-economic 
impact, lasting impact on our children. I find it quite worrying. I mean, that whole idea of eating good food makes you grow up big and strong seems to be under, you know, quite a lot of scrutiny now. And and the fact is, is, as this article talks about, is if you feed a child healthy food, they will grow healthily. This suggests that the level of nutrition and the level of access to good food among the most deprived communities in the United Kingdom has shrunk. And that that is arguably something... It doesn't come as a great surprise, but now that we see it actually physically manifesting in the way that people's bodies are developing is, is quite a big story, isn't it, Yasmin? It's definitely sad. And, and the thing that you point out, and as this piece talks about, it is the increasing poverty of British children over the past decade. You know, and, and you can't expect to have over a decade of austerity reducing things like free school program, um, free breakfast programs and free lunches at schools for, for young people, children whose De- families... Dentistry, for Dentistry. Instance. I mean, one of... I, I heard something recently about Keir Starmer, who's the the opposition leader talking about bringing back um, teeth brushing uh, demonstrations and so on in in schools and partly because one of the biggest causes of hospitalisation for like young children at the age of six is infections in the teeth. The long term strategy seems to be sort of slightly absent now, doesn't it, Nina? I remember reading something about the Well, there's just the general principle that if you... And this isn't just to do with kids. If you feed a child well, it will learn well. If it learns well, it achieves more, it becomes more productive, and overall your country is more productive economically. It's as simple as that. But that's a very hard argument to digest if you're on the poverty line, of which there are so many more people in this country, because also remember that public services are shrinking. Mm-hmm. So Yasmin was just talking about teeth brushing. Um, the Labour Party, part of its big offering that we're anticipating when eventually you see all the details of its manifesto, will be what has been dubbed a nanny state, let's say, uh, quote unquote, the idea of sort of investing in the early years of people's lives so that then the country can be more... More, uh, you know, uh, profitable, healthier, you know, productive later on when those children become adults. And I do think in the UK, this is just my personal observation as a mother of an eight-year-old and a six-year-old, and you're a mum as well, Emma. A very tall um, 11-year-old. Yeah, and you <laughs> no know, lack of nutrition um, in that child. We've lived in other countries around Europe, and there's a very different attitude mm. towards what you put in at the start and you know, how your children end up in the end in terms of health, well-being, education and so on and so forth. And the difficulty for lots of parents here is they're having to deal with the cost of living crisis, which means that they have to buy, cook, make different food. Um, But also the schooling, the investment in the schools has gone down. Many children who might have dentistry problems have never been able to see a dentist because they can't actually get on a National Health Service dental waiting list, even if technically by law they should be allowed to have those services. So this is why we're seeing in this election year these issues be really focused upon because it's where the opposition party feels they can make a big difference. Do you think this year that will change anything, Yasmin? Because what we're discussing here is arguably political short-termism. If you do not see that a government needs to make sure that its next generation is grows up strong and healthy. I mean, the, the the pressure on the health service and the lack of achievement and whatever is is a good ten fifteen years down the line for any for any government. I I mean I hope so. I hope there is change on the horizon because 
If not, it really spells disaster for a longer-term Britain, right? I think that um, if you if you consider, the, you know, for example, the kind of investment in the first five years of a child's life and the exponential difference that makes to their to their overall outcomes, if over a series over two generations you're not getting that investment, then w- once things pan out in twenty thirty years, you're just not going to have you know, the things that Britain depends on the the intellectual economy, the innovation, this, 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 it's just not going to be there. And if you don't want immigration, which neither party seems to want, then who's going to be in this country doing all the things that that make the economy work? Let's move on to uh, arguably something which is taking lots of people's jobs, which is chat GPT. <laughs> the fact that we don't need writers anymore. That's not Apparently. getting smaller. Yeah. It's getting bigger. <laughs> little, bit, little bit worrying is chat GPT. I know of... Uh, they will remain name. They will remain nameless. But someone I know writes for a very large newspaper, um, and they let ChatGPT do half of their stuff. But you're saying that this is uh, ChatGPT is getting lazy. I'm not entirely sure how ChatGPT can make a decision to actively sort of slump on the on the sofa. But but tell us what's happening, Yasmin. Well, yes. So there's this piece that I quite enjoyed reading in The Guardian, and not because I have any investment in the matter as as a writer, but um, a piece which asks, you know, what's going on with ChatGPT? Because there have been a number of anecdotal reports about ChatGPT getting lazier. So sometimes it just won't do the task that you, you sort of, you ask it to do a task and it will, it'll literally be like, that's too much work for me. Do it yourself. Is that the Gen Z version? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's the new. It's the new version. It's I gone mean, to yoga. It's. It, listen. It's tired. The cost of living is hitting ChatGPT. I mean, but what is quite interesting about it is that nobody knows why the the model is changing and giving different responses. You know, Sam Altman, um, who's the head of OpenAI, the company behind ChatGPT, is like, look, it's a bit of a black box. We're trying to figure out, but we don't really know. And that to me is just hilarious and scary. I find it strange, however, how much it has actually overtaken everyday life insofar as I was sitting next to a colleague a couple of days ago and I needed to find another word for something. Now, in the olden days, I'm so old and I'm so old school, I used to look stuff up in a thesaurus. That is arguably what it is there for. And my colleague just went, let me put it through ChatGPT. And I thought, hang on a minute, your ChatGPT is now encroaching on... uh, on completely established routines. But I don't know if it's any better. Sorry, to, uh, Nina, you were just going to come in. But I think this, the interesting thing is that we get very excited about new technology n- without necessarily knowing if it makes any positive impact. It's like all of these sort of productivity tools and apps that everyone becomes obsessed with. Does it actually make you more productive? It, I don't actually know. We've got all 1950s housewife. <laughs> Give her a washing machine. She'll have more time to cook dinner. Ladies, uh, one of the reasons I took a sharp intake of of breath was because I'm going to share an anecdote from the other day. Um, my husband um, uh, went went to f- for a relaxing pint at our local pub. I stayed behind with the kids, you know, babysit them, and then I suddenly get this enormous love letter oh. on my WhatsApp. Two lines in, I thought, "What?" From your husband, I'm <laughs> from assuming. my husband. Okay, that's, that's, it that's was some good. bunch of sort of pseudo Shakespearean bilge. And then he came back extremely <laughs> proud of himself that he decided to do this via chat GPT. Oh, wow. <laughs> Wonderful. Wow. I, I think he felt he'd been able to use chat GPT <laughs> to express <laughs> for the first time. But, you know, it is encroaching into all of our lives and not necessarily in a good way. You need to sort that out, Nina. <laughs> terrible, I tell you. There is an interesting story about that I also read related to this about school teachers 
saying that essays now written by students not actually produced by ChatGPT are starting to sound more like you know, AI-generated content. And so it's. I don't necessarily think that, you know, AI will be mimicking us, but maybe we will start to mimic, you know, and younger people will start to be like, well, this is the standard, so that's what I need to mimic. And that, I, I do think AI might be making us worse writers. Brilliant. As if we weren't on the slippery slope already. <laughs> and, and Bill Ackman, the uh, hedge fund investor who's currently embroiled in a big sort of, you know, uh, DEI um, initiative where he's managed to oust the president of Harvard. Um, Parallel story, but the point he's making is, he says, if any of you have plagiarised any of your work, I'm going to find you via... AI, right? Brilliant. Finally, we've got a couple of minutes to talk about a wonderful thing that happened in the British media this week. Uh, There is a programme called University Challenge. Uh, Two universities' uh, top brains are pitted against each other. The host, Amal Rajan, asked rather a culturally interesting question. Here it is. What name is given to the genre of dance music that developed in the UK in the early 1990s out of the rave scene and reggae sound system culture associated with acts such as a guy called Gerald and Goldie? Drum and bass. Drum and bass. I can't accept drum and bass. We need jungle, I'm afraid. Okay. Um, this is a programme more akin to, to asking questions about Aristotle. So this is quite quite an interesting thing. Um, what then happened is that someone heard it, put it on Twitter and said, could someone please remix this? And this is what happened. What name is given to the genre of dance music that developed in the UK in the early 1990s? Drum and bass. Out of the rave scene and reggae sound system culture associated with acts such as a guy called Gerald. Drum and bass. And there's some more. Can't accept drum and bass. We need jungle, I'm afraid. Can't accept drum and bass. We need jungle. Can't accept drum and bass. We need jungle. Can't accept drum and bass. Hundreds of remixes of this. And the reason why I've launched this is not just to play jungle on Monocle Radio, which frankly, it needs, everybody needs a bit of jungle in their lives, surely. Um, But wasn't it glorious, uh, Yasmin and Nina, to see social media actually doing what it was originally intended to do, which is to bring a bit of joy into our lives? I love a bit of classic, you know, internet doing its thing, taking something that's, you know, just a moment in time. And making just making joy out of it. I, I, I mean, I went down the wormhole of these remixes. There is just, I mean, if I was the kind of person that still went to clubs, I bet you this is going to be out in the clubs. I mean, and we'll be dancing <laughs> to Amal Rajan. Who'd have thought? <laughs> what's delightful about this is Amal Rajan himself, who's an absolute heavyweight broadcaster here in the United Kingdom, has written an article about how much he loved Jungle, um, but has and has been totally reunited with his younger self as a result of yeah. this. It's one of those nice things that things become multi generational. And and just to have a little bit of... It's just nice for people to say, actually, that social media, which does get an awful lot of criticism, justifiably, for being poisonous and dreadful and the rest of it and destructive... Particularly X, the former Twitter platform that this was spawned on, right? It suddenly becomes a really lovely thing. Well, also, I mean, the other thing that I really like about this story is the, the sort of collaborative aspect of it, because... From what I remember, the the clip, somebody posted it and said, can somebody else remix this? Can somebody else sample it? So you don't even always have to do the work. You can just sort of offer something up and be like, the internet will do its thing. Absolutely. Absolutely magic. glorious. Thank you so much uh, to Mariella Bevan for, for finding those clips and getting them already. And well done. Monocle Radio's had a bit of jungle. Uh, that's all the time we have for today's programme. The warmest of thanks to Yasmin Abdel-Majid, Nina Dos Santos, Naomi Shu Elegant and Tyler Brulein. 
in Tokyo. Uh, and to the producer and studio manager, Mariella Bevan, I'm Emma Nelson. Monocle on Sunday returns next week. But until then, enjoy the rest of the weekend, you junglist massive. <laughs>